12 Years in the Saddle for Law and Order on the Frontiers of Texas by Sergeant W.J.L. Sullivan, Texas Ranger. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. 12 Years in the Saddle, Chapters 28-31 through 31. Chapter 28. The Gordon Train Robbery While at my headquarters, I received a message from Adjutant General Mabry at Austin, notifying me that a train was held up on the T&P Railroad, four miles east of Gordon, by four train robbers. Superintendent J.V. Good, of that railroad, gave me transportation for eight men and eight horses and saddles, and I left at once for Gordon, taking with me Bob McClure, Jim Wise, Lee Queen, Billy McCauley, Jack Harwell, Arthur Jones, and Vernon Resser, all rangers. We arrived in Gordon that night and put up at the hotel. The next morning, the proprietor of the hotel told me that there was a Jake Smith who lived in the country who looked rather suspicious to him. He said that when the train robbery was announced in the hotel, he noticed Jake Smith turning pale and becoming rather nervous. Jake made the remark, continued the hotel man, that he bet the robbers had gone north. I asked the proprietor if Jake ever came to town much, or was it rather unusual for him to be in town and stopping at the hotel. He replied that Jake hadn't been in Gordon before in two years. We started out early the next morning to the country to look for the robbers. On account of what the hotel man had told me, I went to Jake Smith's house, but before reaching there I procured some more information concerning Smith. I learned, among other things, that two suspicious characters had been staying around Smith's place and that one of them was wounded and remained there about six weeks. The sick man went by the name of Wilson, and it was presumed that he was shot while robbing some train or store. I was pretty well prepared for Jake when I first reached his house, but I didn't let him know it. I shook hands with Jake and told him that I knew very little about the country, and that I wanted him to pilot me to a place called Board Tree Springs. He said he would take me there, and we tramped all day through the rocks and brush, and walked and rode around the many crooks and turns of the Brazos River, not reaching Board Tree Springs until late that evening. He could have taken us there in a half hour if he had wished to do so, as it was only a mile and a half from his house, but Jake did not want to find these springs any sooner than he could help, for he knew that we would discover something there. When we reached the springs, we found four pallets made of sage grass spread upon the ground where four men had slept. The pallets were about twenty feet apart, and we saw that they had tied four horses up for a long time. We learned afterward that the robbers had concealed themselves at this place, and that they waited there for Wilson, the wounded man who stopped with Jake Smith, to get well enough to join them and help them rob the T&P train. After Wilson got well, they had to wait then for the train that was to bring the money to pay off the coal miners at Thurber. A little while before the train was due to pass by with its $50,000, the robbers captured the section hands and forced them to spread the rails about nine inches. Then they made the hands walk up the track about a hundred yards away from the spreading of the rails, and when the train arrived they ordered Lockerbie, the section foreman, to flag it. When the train stopped, the robbers jumped into the express car to take the $50,000 out, but failed to get it as the money was in a Thurber safe which had a time lock on it. They carried off $2,000, however, that they found in another safe which was smaller than the Thurber safe and more easily opened. The train pulled into Gordon an hour late, and the conductor reported the robbery to the officers, and, as already stated, I was then ordered by Adjutant General Mabry to do all I could to run down the robbers. 
Governor James S. Hogg was on the train when it was hailed up. When we reached Bowertree Springs, we found a large bay horse, branded low down on his left thigh with the letter E. This horse was shod with new shoes, but his feet were terribly cut and bruised around the hoofs. They had run him over the hills and rocks until he was unable to travel any longer. The robbers then stole a paint horse and rode him out and left the bay. In a live oak thicket near where the men had done their cooking, I found two boxes, a coffee pot, frying pan, skillet, and a water bucket. Jake Smith claimed that the first day they came to his house there were only two men, and he said they told him that they wanted to find a pasture for twelve or fifteen hundred head of cattle. Jake said that the men borrowed the cooking utensils which we found in the thicket from him. He also explained Wilson's presence in his house, by saying that the latter came to him and claimed to be suffering with a rising, and he felt sorry for him and let him stay in his house. I also found a nail apron with sugar in one end of it and salt in the other. A carpenter was working on Smith's house when the two men first took dinner there, and while the wounded man was boarding with Smith. Upon opening the two boxes which I found, I discovered some soda in a lady's dress sleeve and some new clothes with cost marks still on them. I learned that a store had been robbed about 18 miles from there, and I notified the merchant of my discovery, and he identified the articles as some of his merchandise and took them back with him. On the two boxes, which we opened, we found written in big letters this warning, Look out for smallpox. All this proved to us that the men were guilty, and that Jake Smith had aided them somewhat in their work. So I told Jake that he was under arrest, but I kept him in the mountains eleven days before I took him to jail. After arresting Smith, I went on that evening to Jack Scott's house to arrest him too. When we arrived at his house, Mrs. Scott informed us that her husband was down at Bill Hitson's, near the river, helping to brand cattle. Our party at that time consisted of eighteen men, and I did not want to take so many to Mr. Hitson's, so I asked Mrs. Scott if she could keep nine men for me that night, and she replied that she could. I left them there, and the other eight men and myself started for Bill Hitson's place. When we were halfway there, we met three cowboys, and I spoke to them and asked if one of them was Jack Scott. One man spoke up and said he was Scott, so I put him under arrest and took him back to Bill Hitson's with me and let the other two cowboys go. The nine men whom I had left at Mrs. Scott's came up and told me that the two cowboys, who were with Scott a little while before, had reported to Mrs. Scott that I had arrested her husband, and she ordered them off the place, saying that she did not want them to roost under her roof. Hitson had to take care of all eighteen of us, but he did not seem to mind it, and treated us nicely. I didn't let Smith and Scott get together, for I did not want them to make medicine. I went back to Scott's house the next morning with him, and offered him five hundred dollars if he would tell me the names of the guilty parties, but Scott replied that he did not know any more than I did about the affair. I got him to walk with me back to the bunch of men where Smith was. When we got close enough for Smith to hear me, I said to Scott, I thank you for giving me so much information about the guilty parties. I watched Smith closely to see what effect that would have on him. He turned pale at first, and in another minute perspiration began to pour off his face. I looked around over the boys, and acted as if I was quite particular about whom I selected, and told Bob McClure and Lee Queen to guard Jake carefully, that we surely did not want him to escape. After I had handcuffed Jake, we mounted our horses and rode off, Jake and I riding close to each other. Jake asked me what Jack Scott had told me. I replied that Scott had informed me that he, Jake, had harbored the man who robbed the store and the express car. He said that Scott was a liar. I saw all the time that he was worried, 
and I tried hard to make him break down and give me the names and whereabouts of the robbers, promising to release him if he did so, but he would not do it. When we reached Smith's house, I left Jake outside with the others, and took Jim Wise, a ranger, into the house where Mrs. Smith, her daughter, and three young men were. I asked Mrs. Smith if these three men were her sons. Two of them are, she replied. I want to talk to the oldest one, I said, and she consented. The young man stepped forward, and I informed him that his father was under arrest for being an accessory to the Gordon train robbery. I told him that his father had informed me that he had let the robbers have a bucket, some cooking utensils, some flour, and some meat, but he could not remember whether it was a ham or a shoulder. It was a ham, said the boy. I told him that his father couldn't remember the dates when he did these things, but asked me to see his sons about it, saying they could remember such things better than he could. Well, I remember when the things occurred, replied the boy, but I cannot remember the dates, though I think my brother can give you that information. I called his brother then, but he couldn't remember the dates either. He, however, also said what I wanted him to. Like his brother, he did not suspect my purpose, and told me that he knew these things happened, but could not remember the dates. Mr. Smith's family seemed to be very nice people. Mrs. Smith sat still during my conversation with her son, and when I was through with him, I told her that everything pointed to her husband's guilt. She made no reply, but I could tell what she and her children were thinking from the significant expression on their faces. Their countenance seemed to say in words, Father, husband, you should not have stood in with Bill, the crippled robber, and if you hadn't, you would not be in such a bad shape now. Captain Lightfoot, an officer from Thurber, and I took Smith to Dallas and lodged him in the county jail. When he entered the jail, he turned over all the money he had with him, except two dollars, to the jailer. Because he broke into the Dallas County Jail with the small sum of two dollars, the jailbirds flogged Smith soundly, and, stripping him, poured a pitcher of ice water on him. Smith was tried for his part in the robbery, but was acquitted, though the common belief was that he was guilty. McCall, a prominent attorney of Weatherford, represented him. After disposing of Smith, I returned to the mountains to capture the four robbers. One night, while some of us rangers were in a mesquite flat, we looked up and saw four men coming down off a mountain. I told my boys that they must be the robbers, and when the men got closer, we heard them say something about us being rangers. Then, believing more firmly than ever that they were the robbers, we charged them, but when we arrived within fifty yards of them, a man in the crowd called out to me that he was Sheriff Williams of Young County. They were looking for the same robbers that we were, so we joined forces and went to Hitson's Ranch to spend the rest of the night. We were in a mighty rough country to hunt criminals, and were very much handicapped in that respect. We were told, upon good authority, that there were 311 miles of crooks and bands in the Brazos River in Palo Pinto County, while it is only 30 miles straight across. No one can imagine how rough it was up and down that river, unless he has been there long enough to see it for himself. It was hard on us rangers, coming, as we did, off the plains in August, and dropping down into these hills, rocks, cat claws, and prickly pears at such a dreadful time of the year. We learned some time after we first visited Board Tree Springs that there was a cave about 75 yards from there which led under a hill. We thought it possible for the robbers to be in that cave, so we entered it and searched thoroughly for the men, but failed to find them. It was such a gloomy-looking place in there that we drew straws to see who were to go in, and it fell on Arthur Jones and me. The cave was about seven feet high and eight feet wide, and extended back about a hundred yards. Arthur and I searched every crook and corner, and discovered many rocks, some of them weighing from sixty to a hundred tons. With our six-shooters cocked and ready for action, we looked behind every large rock, and were disappointed every time we failed to find the robbers. 
While we were going out of the cave, we heard the sound of money, and heard the boys outside calling out to us that they had found money. Arthur and I both broke for the entrance, and before we got out, we heard one of the boys say, It's a twenty-dollar bill. Our lights went out, but we did not stop running. We ran into so many rocks, however, that we were skinned up and bruised from head to foot, and looked as if we had been in an Irish battle. When we reached the outside, the boys gave us the horse laugh, and we were confronted with the cold fact that it was all a joke. We stayed in that country for some time after that, but were finally forced to abandon our chase, as luck was entirely against us. Chapter 29. The Surrender of Four Train Robbers On the night of November 14, 1895, being at headquarters camp in Amarillo, on the Fort Worth and Denver Railroad, I received a telegram from George Leftrick notifying me that six well-armed men, whose actions were suspicious, were camped in Sid Webb's pasture, twelve miles south of Bellevue, Clay County, Texas. I had just returned with seven mounted men from an unsuccessful search, lasting eighteen days, on the Brazos River and in the Palo Pinto Mountains, for four men who had held up a Texas and Pacific train four miles east of Gordon in Palo Pinto County. Knowing that a train robbery had been committed at Red Fork some time previously, and suspecting that these men mentioned by Leftrick were the robbers, I took Billy McCauley, Jim Wise, Doc Neely, Jack Howell, and Bob McClure, and left for Bellevue, shipping our saddles on the train. On arriving within two and one-half miles of Bellevue, I got George Thorne, the conductor, to stop the train, and four of us got off, taking our saddles. Concealing ourselves, we sent word to Leftrick by the other men, informing him of our location, and requesting him to come and bring horses for the party. When Leftrick arrived, I asked him to guide us to the house where the six men were. When we had gotten within two and one-half miles of the house, I saw a man on horseback, some distance off, and he discovered us about the same time, and raised his head and watched us. We were riding fast, and I told the boys to slow their horses, and I would investigate the man. When I started toward him, he broke, and when he did so, I motioned to the boys to come on. I soon came to a four-barbed wire fence, which I cut, letting the boys through, who came up just as I finished cutting the wires. I mounted my horse again, and we captured the man after chasing him a mile and a half. He was also wanted, so I arrested and handcuffed him, and took him with us to within 250 yards of the house where the six men were encamped. When Leftrick showed me the house, I turned the prisoner over to Doc Naley, one of the rangers, with instructions to hold him there, and, telling the others goodbye, I ran my horse to the house, my men all following. When I reached the house, I got off my horse, leaving the reins over his head. I took hold of the doorknob, and as I did so, the men in the house held the knob on the inside and fired two shots through the door, the bullets passing between my legs. I stepped back about four or five feet from the door and ordered the boys to fire through the door, and we emptied our Winchesters and six-shooters. Billy McCauley and Jim Wise were in front of the house with me, and Bob McClure and Jack Harville and Leftrick were at the back of the house behind the dugout. As I knew the balls we were firing through the door would go entirely through the house, I told Billy McCauley to go behind the house and tell the other three men to come to the front, as they were not needed back there, there being no windows or doors in the back of the house. After we had emptied our Winchesters and six-shooters, McCauley and Wise stepped behind a rock chimney to reload, and I walked backward to an old wagon that stood about twelve steps from and in front of the door of the house. I reloaded my Winchester and six-shooter, watching the house all the time. By this time, the men on the inside had gone up into a loft in the house, and we afterward learned that while they were downstairs, we shot the hat off one of the men's heads, and a bullet grazed the neck of one of the men, cutting his coat collar and shirt. 
When they reached the loft, they began fighting us from there. After I had reloaded, I motioned to Billy McCauley and Jim Wise to come to me. Jim didn't come, but Billy joined me and asked me what I intended to do. And we were then about six feet from the door. I'm going to break the door down and go in, I said. Isn't that very dangerous? asked Billy. Yes, I replied, but it is just as dangerous here. We have to get them, and that is the only way. I then broke the door open and sprang into the house, Billy following me. I saw that the floor of the loft was made of plank an inch thick, with no opening except where a ladder led from the bottom floor to the loft. After Billy and I had gotten inside the house, and after I realized our dangerous situation, I told him to go outside or he would likely be killed, for he was a brave young man who I knew would not desert me. I tried to persuade him to leave the house, for I realized that if he was killed, I would be partly responsible for it, having asked him to come in the house with me, but he refused to go and said he was in there to stay, and if I died, he would die also. Just before we entered the house, I placed my left foot on the bottom round of the ladder leading into the loft, threw a cartridge into my Winchester, and shouted to the man above me that I was in there with him. They asked who I was, and I told them my name, stated that we were Texas Rangers, and I wanted them to surrender. Their leader, who went by the name of Skeeter, then said to me that they would never surrender. I told him I had the house surrounded by my men, and there was no chance of escape, but if they didn't come out and surrender, I would set fire to the house and fire them out like rats, while if they surrendered, they would not be hurt. One of the men then told me he would give up, and Skeeter said to him, If you surrender, I'll kill you. If that man wants to surrender, I said, and you kill him, I will burn you at the stake. Of course, this was a bluff, as far as the burning part was concerned, but I was determined if this man wanted to surrender, he should not be hurt. I am coming, said the man who offered to surrender. Be quiet while I talk to you, I replied. Let me see your hands up to your elbows before I see your body, or you are a dead man. Don't attempt to deceive me and try to take advantage of me, for I have the advantage of you. I have a cartridge in my Winchester, my finger on the trigger, and my hammer gone after fire. Here I come, he said. Let me see your hands up to your elbows first, I replied. He did so, and I arrested him, and also arrested the other men in the same manner, and turned them over, one by one, to Billy McCauley as I arrested them. When I had finished, we went outside the house to the spot where I left Doc Neely, about 250 yards away, with the other prisoner. I took the handcuffs off this man, and handcuffed the two strongest men together. My horse, and those of nearly all my men, ran away during the fight. I had a pair of handcuffs and a pair of shackles in my saddle packets. I had one of the rangers go after the horses, and he found them nearly four miles away from where we were, in the corner of a barbed wire fence. When he returned, we hitched the prisoners' horses to a little wagon and took the prisoners to Bellevue, and that night we put them on the train and took them to Wichita Falls. Besides the men, we also captured six Winchesters, four six-shooters, eight belts, 1,000 rounds of cartridges, 25 California blankets, and a new saddle and bridle they had stolen from a man by the name of McDermott. The man who owned the house in which we captured the men asked Cooper Wright, the sheriff of Clay County, if he could not recover damages from the state on account of his house being shot and torn up. But the sheriff advised him to keep quiet, stating that if I heard he was talking of making a complaint against me, I would arrest him for allowing such characters to stay in his house, and he took this advice. The four men whom we captured belonged to Bill Cook's party of six. The other two men, Bill Cook and Jim Turner, at the time of the capture of the four men mentioned above, had left the camp before we arrived, in order to locate a place where they could hold up the Fort Worth and Denver train, and also the Rock Island train, on the 17th day of November, 1895. 
When I arrested the four men at the camp, Bill Cook and Jim Turner were on the way back to camp, having perfected their plans to hold up the two trains, and were within a half mile from the camp at the time of the fight, but upon hearing the shooting they thought it best not to come to the camp. The four men whom we captured were tried at Fort Smith, Arkansas, for the two train robberies and a post office robbery. Charlie Turner turned state's evidence, and his case was dismissed, but the other three men pled guilty and were sent to Sing Sing for thirty and twenty years each. We got eight hundred and fifty dollars for their capture. Chapter 30. The Pursuit of Bill Cook and Jim Turner. Immediately after the trial of the four robbers whom we captured in Sid Webb's pasture, I got my men together and started out after Bill Cook and Jim Turner. I went to Jack County, and while searching in that part of the country, I went to the home of a Mr. Snyder. Jim Turner's father was living there at that time, he being Mrs. Snyder's brother. When my man and I reached the house, Mr. Snyder, Mr. Turner, and another man came to the door, and I told them to come to where I was, which they did. I asked them if Bill Cook and Jim Turner were in the house, and they told me there was no male person in the house. I told my men, however, to stay where they were and hold these three men, and I would search the house. When I reached the door, Mrs. Snyder told me to leave my Winchester out of doors, but I told her to please step out of the door, and she did so. I entered the house, searched one room, but found no one. When I entered the room where Mrs. Snyder was, I noticed a large object under the corner of a bed in that room, and there was a small part of the brim of a hat visible from under the edge of the cover. I had my Winchester in my right hand, and with my left I jerked the cover back. As I did so, the fellow swore he would fight every one of us, and used profane language to give weight to his words. When he made this remark, I cocked my Winchester and placed the end of it in his mouth. My men heard this man when he spoke, and heard the rattle of my Winchester, so they rushed in. Mrs. Snyder was wiping out a heavy tin biscuit pan, and when she saw my boys coming in, and saw the dangerous position of the man in the bed, she hit me over the head as hard as she could with this pan, and said to me, You came near killing my son. When I collected my wits and got my hat back on my head, I told my men to go to my horse and get my handcuffs and shackles, that I would handcuff this man and shackle the old lady and take them to Jacksboro. She told me if I would not arrest her, she would sit down and behave herself, and I told her if she would do so, it would be all right. The three men then came to the door, and Mr. Turner fell and asked Mrs. Snyder for the camphor, saying he had palpitation of the heart. And I said to him, You old villain, you told me such a lie, I have a good notion to give you palpitation of the head. He then said that the man in the bed was Mrs. Snyder's son, but that he had forgotten about him being in the house, that he had been to Bowie, gotten drunk, and then thought my man and I were officers from Bowie who had come to arrest him. I then released this man and left, having seen nothing of Cook and Turner. On December 22, 1896, I received a letter from J. H. Harkey, sheriff of Dickens County, stating that there were two suspicious characters in his town, Dickens, and from the descriptions he gave, I was confident that they were the two men I wanted. My man and I went to Childress, shipping our horses, and then rode from there across the country to Dickens, 125 miles away. When we arrived at Dickens, Sheriff Jeff Harkey again described the two men to me, and I was still more confident that they were the two men I was after. The sheriff said they had left Dickens and had gone to Scurry County. He consented to go to Scurry County with us, which was 125 miles from Dickens. After we arrived in Scurry County, we went to Mitchell's Ranch, the square and compass by name, which was about 50 miles southwest of Snyder, Scurry County. 
Here we received information from John and Jim Mitchell in regard to Bill Cook, alias Mayfield, and Jim Turner, and they told us the two men had been at their ranch, but that they had gone to Green Eyegold's ranch, 100 miles from there. I had sent back all but two of my men at Dickens, keeping Billy McCauley and Vernon Resser. Deputy Sheriff Ira Gooch joined me at Snyder, Scurry County. Norman Rogers, the sheriff of Kent County, also joined me. Sheriff Harkey left me eight miles from Gale, Borden County, his horse being sick. When I started to Green Eyegold's ranch, I had with me only three men, Sheriff Rogers, Deputy Ira Cooch, and Vernon Resser, Billy McCauley being forced to stop at Pete Scroggins' ranch, his horse having given out. When we reached Eyegold's ranch, we hitched our horses and started to the house, where we saw Eyegold standing in the door and five men standing at the window. I told my men to keep an eye on the parties at the window while I had a talk with Igold. When I started toward Igold, he said that I must leave my Winchester out of doors. I told him to get out of the door, which he did, and I entered the house. I asked him if those were his men standing at the window, and he replied that they were. I then asked him if Jim Dillard was there, and he said he was. I told Dillard to step out of the crowd, which he did, and I arrested him as he was wanted at Colorado City for shooting up the town. He and Joe Elkins and Jim Turner had been arrested by a deputy sheriff at Colorado City, but they had escaped. I learned from Igold and his men that Cook and Turner had been there, but had left several days before. I took Jim Dillard and started back to Pete Scroggins' ranch, where we were to spend the night. On the way there, I met Joe Elkins, who was with some cowboys driving a bunch of cattle. I arrested him also and took him with me to Scroggins'. The next morning, I told these two men if they would tell me where Bill Cook and Jim Turner went when they left Igold's ranch and their plans, that I would release them. They accepted this proposition and told me that Cook went to Roswell, New Mexico, and Turner went to Colorado City to meet his sweetheart, Zeddie Sweezer, where they were to be married, that Bill Cook's sweetheart and his sister were to join him at Roswell, and that Turner was captured in Colorado City but made his escape. The young lady afterward located him, and they were married in Big Springs and went to Roswell. They lived there three months when Turner was arrested and jailed at Fort Smith, Arkansas. When I was at Mitchell's Ranch, as stated, I learned that there was a letter in the post office at Grassland, Texas, in care of the Square and Compass Ranch for Jim Turner. My men and I were almost broken down, so I got John Mitchell to get the letter for me, of which the following is a copy. Roswell, N.M., December 25, 1894. Mr. James Turner, Grasslands, Lynn County, Texas. Sir, we received your letter yesterday that you wrote to Santee. You wanted to know where he is. He left here last May and started to the Indian Territory. We have some kinfolks there. We have never heard of him yet. I will close. Mama said she would write to you, but she is getting very old and cannot see. Hope you all have good luck. It seems like I know you. I have heard Santee speak of you so much. Yours respectfully, Della Harris, Roswell, Chaves County, New Mexico. When I captured Bill Cook's four men, as I have already related, I found on one of them a list of 14 men who had participated in four robberies with Bill Cook. One of the names on the list was Santee Harris. By getting the above letter, I obtained a clue as to Harris's whereabouts, and it also led me to believe that if Bill Cook was in Roswell, as I had been informed, he would likely be at the Harris home, or... If not there, they could doubtless tell me where he was. My men and horse were completely worn out, so I took them to Colorado City and sent them by rail to headquarters at Amarillo. 
I then went to Roswell, but to keep from attracting attention, I went alone to the courthouse, where I spent the day having my dinner brought to me so I would not be seen during the day. When night came on, I asked the sheriff if he knew a family in Roswell by the name of Harris, and he answered that he did. About eight o'clock that night, I asked him to show me their house. He went with me until we were about seventy yards from the house. Then he stopped and pointed it out to me, but would go no further. After telling him to wait for me at the courthouse, I entered the gate at the Harris home and was about to close it when a man came up, and I asked him if Mrs. Harris lived there, he replying that she did, as she was an aunt of his. I asked him to tell her I wished to speak to her, and after he had done so, she came to the door and asked me in, but I told her I preferred to talk to her at the gate. She then came to where I was standing, and told me she was Mrs. Harris. I told her my name was Bob Turner, Jim Turner's brother, that Jim had promised to meet me at her house, and a friend of mine by the name of Williams, or probably Mayfield, had also promised to meet me there, and if my friend had been to her house, she had likely learned that the names Williams and Mayfield were his aliases, and she'd probably learned his real name. She replied, saying that my brother Jim had not been there, but my friend had been, and that his real name was Bill Cook, that he had arrived there Thursday at noon, and left Friday morning before sunrise. I asked her if he told her to tell me where to meet him, and she said he didn't mention Bob's name, but said to tell Brother Jim to meet him at a ranch, the name of which she had forgotten, but it was just to the right of White Oaks. I then told her that some of our party had been captured on the Texas and the Indian Territory line, and also said I had heard her son, Santy, speak of her daughter very often. The man I met at the gate and Mrs. Harris's daughter were in the house, and heard me make the remark about Santy speaking of his sister, and they then came to the door, and the man said, This is Della, now. I then told her about seeing her brother, and Mrs. Harris asked me where I saw Santy. I replied that he joined us last May, and she then denied his ever being out of New Mexico, but said he was then about fifty miles from there, with his father herding cattle. The man and the girl standing in the door then spoke up and said, Why, mother, you ought to be ashamed to tell the man that. He is all right. But she told them to keep quiet. I said I would not argue about Santy, but I would like for them to show me the way to White Oaks. I then shook hands with all of them, and asking them not to mention having seen me, I started toward the mountain. After I had gotten out of sight, I turned and went to the courthouse, where I explained to Perry all that I had learned from Mrs. Harris in regard to Bill Cook, and told him to get a buggy and a pair of the best horses he could find, and we would go to White Oaks on the following morning, and capture Cook, White Oaks being 100 miles from Roswell. I told Perry I had been following Cook so long that I was completely worn out, and I had to have some sleep that night before I could go to White Oaks, but that I would be ready to go with him at daylight. The next morning, I learned that Perry had gotten another man and left for White Oaks that night about midnight. If I had been in my own jurisdiction, I would have gone to White Oaks that morning alone, but being outside the state of Texas, I had to have the assistance of some New Mexico officer before I could arrest a man. I therefore asked ex-Sheriff Billy Atkins to go with me to White Oaks, explaining to him the way Perry had treated me, and he said he would be glad to accommodate me, as I had assisted him in Texas several times, but that if he did so it would cause trouble between him and Sheriff Perry. Being unable to get anyone to go with me to White Oaks, I decided to go to El Paso, thinking it probable that Perry would not find Cook, and that he, Cook, would go to El Paso. At Eddie, I learned that a man had been placed in jail there a short time before, so I stopped over, thinking, perhaps, this man was Jim Turner, as I was told he was heavily armed. But on going to the jail, I found he was not Turner, 
but was a man who I had seen at Thurber, Texas, some time before. The train having left me, I had to stay in Eddie until the next morning, and that night the sheriff and I searched Eddie and another small place a mile from there, thinking we might find Jim Turner, but we failed to do so. The next evening I left for El Paso. Captain J. H. Hughes was camped at Isleta, twenty miles from El Paso, and I wired him to meet me at the train and go to El Paso with me, which he did. We made a thorough search, both in El Paso and across the river, in Old Mexico, but did not find Cook. That night I heard that Cook had been captured at White Oaks by Sheriff Perry, but it was no surprise to me. I boarded the eastbound train and went back to Pecos, where I met the train Cook was on. I found him with Perry, Tom Love, and one McMurray of Colorado City. Perry was standing on the platform of the train, and I went up to him and said, You have treated me worse than any honorable officer would treat another. I also told him that was a dirty game he played on me in Roswell. He did not say a word, went into the car where Cook was. I followed him and saw Cook in chains facing me. I spoke to him, calling him by his name, and he said, Howdy, John L. On my asking him how he knew me, he replied he had had me described to him very often. Then he wished to know how I happened to recognize him, and I told him I had had his description a long time, but that I believed I would not have known him if it had not been for the squint in his left eye. Perry and his men had walked back to the rear of the car, and Cook said to me, Those men have gone back there to make medicine against you, for they have all said they intended to beat you out of the reward and honor of my capture, which I think you justly deserve, for you have simply lived on my trail. Is your Winchester a forty-five ninety? he then asked. Yes, I replied. Well, that is my gun, and I suppose you captured it when you captured my four men. I bought four of those guns at the same time, one for myself, one for Brother Jim, one for Cherokee Bill, and one for Jim French, costing me $18 at the factory. Where were you at the time I captured your four men, I asked. I was about half a mile from you. Jim Turner and I had been out planning to rob the Fort Worth and Denver and the Rock Island trains, and were just returning to camp. Didn't you find a money sack made of ducking, with a train bell cord worked in the top like a tobacco sack? We were going to put the money in that sack when we held up the trains. Yes, I found it, I replied. I have it at my camp. I then said to Cook, Bill, you know you are done for now, and you will never be free again. Tell me where Jim Turner is. Now, Jim left me at the ZL Ranch, he replied, and went to Colorado City to meet his girl, and we were all to get together later on and go to Old Mexico. This girl's name was Zeddy Sweezer. Well, that's all I know about Jim. Why didn't you and Jim help your men when we captured them, if you were only half a mile away? Well, we had left our Winchesters at the camp when we went out to plan for the holdup, so we would not attract attention, and had only our pistols with us, and decided it was best not to come up without anything but our six-shooters. If I had had my Winchester, I could easily have killed you 800 yards away. We met an old gentleman and two ladies in a wagon. The ladies had fainted, and the old gentleman was fanning them. The man said to us, You men are strangers to me, but don't go where you hear that shooting, for they are having one of the biggest fights I ever saw. They made my horses run away. Jim and I afterwards scouted around in Jack, Palo Pinto, Clay, and Dickon counties, keeping on the move all the time. When the train arrived in El Paso, I stepped in the depot to put my Winchester and overcoat away, and when I came out, I saw that Perry and his men were taking Cook away in a carriage. After they had gone up the street a short distance, they opened the window and looked out. I got a carriage and passed them. They had stopped, and the reporters were writing down every word Cook said. 
I drove to the Wells Fargo Express office and wired to three friends of mine at Kansas City, Simpson, Stockton, and Ed Dodge, who were in the employ of the Wells Fargo Express Company, stating that I was in El Paso, that Bill Cook had been captured, and explained how the three men had ruled me out of the reward entirely, and that I wished to put in my claim for my part of the reward. I only asked for one-fourth of the reward. In about an hour, I received a telegram stating that they recognized my claim in full. I have never received any part of this reward. Chapter 31 On the 11th of January, 1895, I went to Eddy, New Mexico, in search of Jim Turner, Bill Cook's right-hand man. I happened to be short of money on that day, so I went to a cheap but respectable hotel to get lodging for the night. I met the lady who ran the house and asked her if I could get a good room. She said that all the rooms were taken, and then asked me if I would not sleep in a room with Judge Wright. I asked her what kind of a man he was, and she replied that he was a fine gentleman. I then told her that I would sleep in the room with him. After engaging the room, I left the hotel and joined the sheriff in the search for Turner, the train robber. About twelve o'clock that night I returned to my room and went straight to bed. There was no one in the room, and I soon fell asleep, for I was considerably fagged out. I had been asleep about half an hour when a man entered the room and woke me up with his racket. I turned over and watched his movements for a while in silence. He lit a lamp, and when I got a glimpse of his face, I decided that he didn't look much like a lawyer to me. He staggered across the room and sat down on the side of his bed. Then he pulled out his revolver and, half-cocking it, threw it over against the wall. When he got through, I asked him what his name was. He did not tell his name, but replied that he was the deputy sheriff from Tongue River. I told him that he was making an awful play with his six-shooter, and that even if he was the deputy sheriff from Tongue River, he had better go a little slower. I remarked that there were women and children in the next room, and that they would be safer if he kept his six-shooter still. He then attempted to enter into conversation with me, but I told him I was too sleepy to talk any more. I went back to sleep after he had turned the light low, but nearly an hour after that I was again rudely aroused by another man coming noisily into the room. This time it was the lawyer who had been recommended to me as a fine gentleman. His face was red, and, like the deputy sheriff, he also threw his feet high when he walked. Getting his clothes off seemed rather a difficult task to him, and I thought he would never accomplish it. When he finally did get undressed, however, he had an equally hard job getting in his bed. He and the deputy sheriff slept in the same bed, and I was frequently disturbed during the night by them getting up to get a drink of water. About five o'clock in the morning, the lawyer made one of his regular dives at his bed, but this time he went the wrong way and landed on top of me. I jumped up, and, grabbing him by the collar, I led him to his bed and pitched him head first on top of the deputy sheriff. Then I dressed and went to a three-dollar hotel and paid a dollar for a bed until breakfast. End of chapters 28 through 31